Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Thursday, September 1st, and it will begin airing on Sunday, September 4th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-host, Jasmine Smith. How's it going? Hey, it's just the two of us back again. Just the two of us. Shout out to Emily out there in Spain. But are you yes. over there melting like I am out here in LA? <laughs> um, I'm not. Like, I'm doing all right. I actually feel like it's... um, I like this weather. It feels kind of like spring, fall. You can feel that it's transitioning, but it's still fairly hot in the day. Um, but I'm comfortable. I'm sorry to hear that you're melting over there. Girl, I feel like hot chocolate right now. Okay. It's been a scorcher. It's about to be a heat wave (laughs) out here in LA. So y'all drink some water. Watch out for those bush fires all over California. And um, yeah, just try to keep you cool. I feel like the heat brings agitation as well. So maybe that's just me. (laughs) No, you're right. And like, I didn't know until, I didn't find out until recently that um, in the United States, I don't know if it's true around the world, but the weather condition that kills the most people every year is the heat, is excessive heat. You know, I think people might think it's something dramatic like flooding or hurricanes, but it's just, you know, your body can only take so much, especially if you're older or you might have different conditions. So be careful for real. Like if you are experiencing heat, you know, take it easy, stay hydrated, get to a cooling center if you need to. So it's nothing to mess with. And try to keep your stress levels down, y'all, because I'm telling you, all those things combined is not good. So, (sighs) all right. So let's hop into it. On the docket for today's episode, our local news story is about a plaque with the KKK's image that is still hanging on a building in West Point. Our national news story is about a four-year-old who took a loaded gun to school in South Texas, and now his father is facing charges. The world news story is about the floods that are happening in Pakistan. And our good news story today is about a breakthrough that might finally destroy the harmful forever chemicals in our water. So we're going to go ahead and kick off the the story today, the show today, with our local news segment. Jasmine, take it away. Okay, so this um, story idea was actually Emily's. Um, Emily couldn't record with us today, um, but this was something that stood out to her that she thought was something important. So um, this article is from NPR. The title is, A plaque with the words Ku Klux Klan still hangs on a building at West Point. Um, It was updated today, September the 1st, and written by Joe Hernandez. A plaque with the words Ku Klux Klan written below a hooded figure folding what appears to be a rifle. Below a hooded figure holding what appears to be a rifle currently hangs on a building at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point in New York. The marker referencing one of the country's most infamous hate groups is garnering attention due to a special commission 
formed to look into connections to the Confederacy at U.S. military bases and other properties. Last year, the Naming Commission was charged with surveying Defense Department assets for ties to the Confederacy and making recommendations on how to rename or remove the references. In a report released on Monday, the commission highlighted the presence of the Ku Klux Klan mounted marker at the entrance of Bartlett Hall, a science building at West Point, the U.S. Army's elite training school. Though it noted that there are clearly ties between the KKK and the Confederacy, the plaque fell outside of its specific remit created by Congress, the commission said. The commission encourages the Secretary of Defense to address Department of Defense assets that highlight the KKK in defense memorialization processes and create a standard disposition requirement for such assets, the report said. The KKK was formed in 1865 by six Confederate veterans of the Civil War and initially, target, and initially targeted Black people in the post-war South before also turning its hateful agenda against Jews, Catholics, and others. In a statement, the U.S. Military Academy's Public Affairs Office said the image is part of a large triptych that depicts the history of the U.S. and that the three bronze panels attempt to document both tragedy and triumph in America's past. Among many other symbols, the triptych also includes individuals who were instrumental in shaping principal events at, of the time and symbols like the tree of life that depict how our nature, how our nation, that depict how our nation has flourished despite its tragedies, the statement said. The Academy added in a second statement that it was reviewing the Naming Commission's recommendations and would work with the Department of the Army to carry out any approved changes. West Point's commission is to develop leaders of character who internalize Army values, the ideals of duty, honor, country, and the Army ethic, that statement said. As a values-based institution, we are fully committed to creating a climate where everyone is treated with dignity and respect. Though the commission concluded that the KKK plaque was beyond its purview, the eight-member body found other assets linked to the Confederacy at West Point and the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. They included barracks, a housing area, and a child development center at West Point named for Confederate General Robert E. Lee, as well as the superintendent's quarters and a road at the Naval Academy named after Confederate Admiral Franklin Buchanan, to name just a few. Notably, the commission has made recommendations for renaming nine army bases across the South with names tied to Confederate figures. For example, Louisiana's Fort Polk would be renamed Fort Johnson in honor of William Henry Johnson a black soldier renowned for his heroics in World War I. The commission also suggested renaming Fort Hood in Texas at Fort, as Fort Cavazos after Richard E. Cavazos, the first Hispanic American to become a four-star general in the army. Early last year, Congress overrode President Trump's veto and passed a defense spending bill that included a provision requiring the renaming of military assets with names linked to the Confederacy. 
It followed the racial justice protests that erupted across the country in the summer of 2020. The Secretary of Defense has the final say on renaming bases and other assets, and a plan is expected to be implemented by January 1st, 2024, according to the commission. Uh, and just a note about the plaque in question, there was a much longer New York Times article about the same issue. And um, that article mentioned that the sculptor, her name was Laura Garden Fraser. And um, looking her up, like she sculpted the the, KK, the plaque that has the KKK image on it um, in 1965. She is also known for um, doing a double equestrian statue of Generals Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in Baltimore. Uh, so I thought that was interesting that, you know, she, the artist in question has, you know, also done these other um, monuments to Confederate generals, like in other contexts. That is interesting. I, I'm not even surprised that this is something that exists at West Point, to be honest with you. Like, <laughs> that's like the last point, last place I imagine these sort of things to be changed. Just because it kind of holds like a historical place, you know, with the whole training of the military and all of those different things. Uh, I don't know. It seems like the last place where real change would be enacted. So I'm not surprised that this is still in existence. Are you? No, I'm I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, I think it's kind of odd a little bit, like the um, the reasoning that was given, like that the plaque is supposed to show like tragedy and triumph. I'm like, I really don't think that makes a whole lot of sense. Like, I, it seems to me like it would be placed there as if you know this is supposed to be in the artist's mind or whoever okayed it like that that's you know something to be proud of in this country's history but it's not in our history it's very much in our present like that hate group is still alive there's still people within the military within the police forces that have ties to that group and similar groups so you know it's not like it's a something that's from ancient history that doesn't exist anymore you know, so I, it doesn't, I don't know, that justification just didn't add up to me, like, why would that be in a place that's supposed to be, you know, a place of education or honor if you're not honoring the people that are in the image itself, you know? I totally agree. Um, it's a conflicted way to say something. I guess, I think I feel like that, that justification was just a twist of I don't know their way to twist around what they're trying to do, but hate is hate, no matter, you know, how it's symbolized. We all know what that means, no matter where it's at and what you say and the purpose is, it represents a very dark past and not something that needs to sustain or even be recreated at this point. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, that whole, when people try to say it's about heritage, not hate when you're talking about um, the Confederate flag and other um, images that commemorate people who fought for the Confederacy. Um, it just sounds to me like doublespeak, you know, like a lot of these right. things were erected at a time. You know, I understand the commission says because this isn't something that's technically 
um, a part of the Confederacy because the organization began after the end of the war. Um, a lot of those statues and things that you see that are monuments to the Confederacy, they came out like years after the war was over. And the purpose was to be like in a, in a backlash against like black people making progress. Like it was a way to reassert that, you know, this is who we think should be celebrated. You know, the people that were fighting to maintain the quote unquote Southern way of life or to maintain slavery and all of this. So the idea that in the sixties, you know, when the KKK was extremely active and was out here lynching people and doing horrific things, that that image would be included for any type of positive or reasonable reason that would make sense. Like I, I don't believe it, you know, but like you said, like it's, it's a military institution. It's the U S military. So it's not like the purpose of the organization is, you know, peace and love and rainbows. And, you know, not everyone that goes into that has, you know, progressive views. There are many people with regressive views within that organization. So I guess we'll see what happens ultimately with the plaque, if anything. Exactly. I feel like we have such a conflictual um, dialogue about what is historic in this country and why it's significant. Um, You know, one of the things that I will always consider part of America is struggle and strain and oppression. (laughs) Um, and that is a part of the American way of life. Like it is a lot of places in this world, but now the perspective of what that means and who it's for, I guess that varies by person, by region, by minute of the day. All right, y'all, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. So today is the queen's birthday. That's right. I'm, I'm real weird today, but today is Beyonce's birthday. So we are going to have a couple tracks to celebrate her music and uh the first one is off of the new album renaissance and it's called heated we'll be right back
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And our national news story today comes from an article on CNN.com. Um, the title of this article is a four-year-old took a loaded gun to his South Texas school. Now his father faces charges, police say. The author of this article is Amanda Jackson. And the article reads... A four-year-old took a loaded handgun Wednesday to his South Texas elementary school, and his father has been arrested after the incident prompted a lockdown, officials said. School administrators at John F. Kennedy Elementary School in Corpus Christi learned a student had a weapon on Wednesday on campus around 9 a.m., according to a letter sent to parents from West Oso Independent School District Superintendent Coronado Garcia. The school went on lockdown immediately, and the Corpus Christi police officer on campus took the weapon and secured it, the letter, the letter detailed. The handgun was loaded, Corpus Christi Police Department said in a news release. Police and school officials did not say how the weapon was first discovered. The incident comes as a new school year ramps up across much of the United States, with parents, students, and public officials worry over the mass shootings that left 19 fourth graders and two teachers dead in May in Uvalde, Texas. In Arizona this week, a second grader was found with two guns and ammunition at Cochise Elementary School, the sheriff's office said there in a Facebook post. The child's parents were called and a juvenile referral made with charges a juvenile referral made with charges of misconduct with a weapon and a minor in possession of a firearm were sent to the sheriff's office. In the Corpus Christi case, investigators determined the gun belonged to the student's parents and police arrested the student's 30-year-old father, who has been charged with making a firearm accessible to a child and abandoning or endangering a child. Conviction on the latter charge carries up to two years in prison. The father was booked Wednesday evening into the Nueces County Jail and bond information wasn't immediately available. What the quote says, while we do not believe the student and the staff were in any kind of imminent danger, as a precaution, the campus has increased police presence and maintained a higher level of security at the school until Corpus Christi Police Department gave us a clear at 10.30 a.m., Garcia wrote to the parents. District administrators and the superintendent responded immediately and arrived on campus to assist with monitoring this lockdown. Corpus Christi police urged gun owners to ensure their weapons were properly secured and checked them frequently. We recommend that all guns are unloaded, triggers locked, and that and locked in a gun safe or a pistol box with the ammunition locked away separately, police said in the news release. Keys for the guns and ammunition should be located out of reach of children, away from the weapons and ammunition. So that's the write-up. The story is actually was updated today. I'm sure there'll be more that'll come out, but I thought this was an interesting story. I mean, obvious, it's obvious this is a problem, right? But as we are entering this new school year, you know, we've had the summer to deal with all of the, I feel, political and international dramas of this life. 
But here we are again, going into September and, you know, memories of all of these uh, mass shootings at schools and things like that are fresh in our minds. And it is a bit of nervousness. It is a bit of concern, I think, for all of the youth entering school right now, even on a collegiate level, um, you know, the world is different, but it's not. And this is a four-year-old. First of all, why did he even know where the gun was? And what possessed him to pick it up and put it in his bag? Like, I just, children learn from people, right? Or television or something else. But the reality is he knew to put it in his bag and take it to school. Something is just not right here. Yeah, that's, I've never heard of a child that young being able to, because four is very small. That's like, that's under kindergarten. Like what? We're barely what, formulating sentences. Yeah, like I, you know, I, I thank, thank God, like that the gun didn't go off, that nothing actually happened, but that could have ended tragically. I, I um, can't help but to wonder how he knew to put it in his bag. Yeah, I don't know either, but it's like what you're saying, like children are very observant and children know more than sometimes the adults around them understand or give them credit for. So if the gun has been talked about or like he, they, the child saw someone go get it or saw someone pull it away, we don't know if it was brandished or something in the home and that's how the child knew. I, It's... Who can say? But then I'm, I'm like, what's gonna happen now? Like, if the father is, could the father potentially go to jail because of this? Well, the is charges that- seem pretty serious, um, especially the one that was. Let me see. Let me go back and look at the article real quick. But I believe there was an endangerment charge, and that those kind of hold a much higher level. But even in this story, saying that. Here we go. Uh, he's been charged with making a firearm accessible to a child and abandoning or endangering a child. So those endangering, anything that's endangering um, normally has a higher charge. Um, and I'm not a lawyer at all. Um, but I'm just saying I'm sure that's a pretty critical charge right there. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely think like there was an issue as far as like being responsible because guns kill many children. Like it's not always something like um, a school shooting or something where like there was a deliberate decision to attack someone and that's how the child dies. Like there's a lot of instances just like this where the child somehow gets access to it and you know they think it's a toy or they don't understand you know how dangerous it is and it goes off by accident you hear a lot of stories about you know a ch- children killing like siblings killing each other by accident just because the gun was in the home and available um and it's it's just so terrifying cuz it seems like particularly with this taking place in Texas in a place where people almost treat like their guns almost like, you know, something that they worship or like they put having access and free flowing access to these weapons 
it's like above any and everything else, no matter how much of a threat it is, like you don't ever want to restrict the flow of guns, which I just don't, I'll never fully understand it. Like I can understand to a degree wanting to be able to protect yourself, but it just seems to be on steroids in my opinion. Like just not wanting to have no restrictions at all. Like it's just wild to me. These weapons have a life, you know, these weapons have a life. These weapons have a story. These weapons have a mission. And what bothers me the most about this story is two things. One, you know, least the child didn't harm himself because it was locked and loaded. Like it's one thing to have a weapon in the house and it's locked away and it's not prepared for combat. You know, I grew up in Ohio. My parents had weapons, you know, but it was never... I knew where it was in case of emergency, but it, I had to go in a room and go in a spot and do all this stuff to get it. It wasn't like it was just sitting out for me to be like, oh, let me see what I can do with this. Like definitely would have been a process of me obtaining or being able to access it. Um, but just, you know, the, the the negligence here, right, of the, of the parent. And then, you know, there's no talks about uh, there being another parent in the situation as well. So if this father is arrested, what's going to happen to this child? Yeah, that's what I was wondering too, because it's, um, I'm not saying that the parent wasn't at fault for the child being able to have access to the gun, but I feel like the, the solution in my mind would be like, maybe this is a person that shouldn't be allowed to have a firearm as opposed to like locking them up because then that just leads to even more disruption and potential problems for the kid you know like I don't know if I would necessarily think like oh this the child was being abused or that it's not a safe home like overall it just seems like someone wasn't paying attention or you know wasn't being diligent but that doesn't mean that the child doesn't have parents that care about them or other like family where they would be safe and they have a home there and that they shouldn't be removed. So I'm kind of, um, I'm concerned as well, because they didn't mention another parent. Like, I don't want this to be something where it leads to like a massive disruption of the child's life. Because that's like four is like a baby. Like he doesn't, he didn't know what he was doing. You know, he just thought, oh, like this is, some I don't know. He probably just thought it was a toy, or you know, he's little. And that's you. Guns are heavy, okay. When they locked and loaded, they are pretty heavy. So I I don't know. I mean, it's it's a lot of holes in this story, but you know, I thought it was important to discuss because first of all, the the age of the child. I mean, four is crazy for him right. to have access to pick up a gun and put it in his bag. My goodness, that's um, wild. Like, I can't even I'm, imagine it. it. Like it doesn't even seem real. Yeah, I'm looking at um the gun violence archive, and it keeps some um, a steady record of information about gun violence in the United States. And it says the number of children aged zero to eleven killed by guns so far in 2022 is 228. Oh my injured, god! Injured, injured is 504. The number of teens aged 12 to 17 killed so far this year is 902. The number of teens aged 12 to 17 injured is 2,530. 
Uh, um, and it's counting, you know, and like you have to consider things like um, self-harm, you know, children go through stuff where they're stressed out, they're afraid, they don't, you know, they might be bullied and having a gun in the house makes it more likely that they might decide to, you know, hurt themselves or escalate a situation that could have been a fist fight. You know, I'm going to go get so-and-so's gun and then they show up and it's now a, a homicide. So these numbers are really something else, man. It's really yeah. it's depressing to see. Yeah, we, I mean, just be mindful. You know, if you're going to keep a weapon in the house and you have young kids, at the very least, keep it out the way. Um, you know, tell them that it should not be in their possession because sometimes people just need to be directed, especially children. If you tell a child not to do something and they're in formative years, chances are if you are an authoritative figure, they're going to listen to you at least initially remember what you said if they decide to do something against it. Um, be a lock that shit away, man. Put it away. Don't let them have access. I mean, anything could have happened here. That child could have hurt himself. He could have hurt others. That gun could have been dropped the wrong way and went off in the cloud. Like the possibilities are endless of what could have happened in this situation. I'm just grateful that no one was actually hurt. And let's just, you know, send prayers up for this child who hopefully has other guardians and people around um, to take care of him in this, this awful situation. For real. Like, yeah, I echo all of that. Like, if you have one, keep it completely out of their reach please just you know so no one gets hurt but also the violence of kids being removed from their home is also right. like traumatic so don't make these types of mistakes or these lapses in judgment that can now have you in a situation where you lose your child in a different way even if they don't you know get hurt or pass away absolutely we're going to go ahead and hop into our next music break. Take a breather. This song is a dope throwback suggested by Jasmine. This is So Good by Destiny Child. We'll be right back. Keep it real, didn't get caught up in 
how to make you feel all the things i'm doing that you thought i never could i want you to know that i'm doing so good wasn't it you that said i thought i was all that and you said i didn't have a clue wasn't it you that said that i wouldn't make it through can follow our social media accounts we have an instagram account and we also have a facebook account our facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free bk no spaces no punctuation our instagram account is at objection to the rule again no spaces no punctuation marks welcome back to objection to the rule on radio free brooklyn and now next up we have our world news story jasmine you're up okay so this is um i'm sure if you've been following the news you've been seeing some of the images coming out of pakistan right now is truly horrific uh, this article is called a monsoon on steroids what to know about Pakistan's catastrophic floods. Uh, this was written for Time by Sanya Mansour on August the 31st. Pakistan is grappling with its worst flooding in living memory. A staggering one third of the country was underwater as of this week with more than 30 million people affected over the last few weeks, killing at least 1,100 civilians and pushing almost half a million people into relief camps. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has referred to the disaster as a monsoon on steroids that requires urgent collective action. The immediate cause of the catastrophic floods is record rainfall. So far this year, the rain is running at more than 780% above average levels. So that means it's nearly eight times as much rain as is normal. Um, that was me saying that, the almost eight times part. Uh, said Abid Kayum Suleri, a director at Pakistan's Sustainable Development Policy Institute. Melting glaciers... Pakistan has more glaciers than any other country, is also contributing to the floods, which are linked to climate change. It was only in 2010 when Pakistan last experienced such extensive floods, but officials have already suggested that the damage from this year's calamity is even worse. That year, then UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon had described them as the worst natural disaster he had ever seen not just in Pakistan, but anywhere in the world. The 2010 floods affected about 20 million people and led to more than 1,500 deaths. The UN said Tuesday that it is seeking 160 million in emergency aid for the ongoing floods, noting that nearly 1 million homes had been damaged and more than 700,000 livestock were lost. The US announced that same day it would send 30 million in aid to Pakistan. 
Humanitarian relief has started to arrive in the country, but efforts have been hampered by extensive infrastructural damage. Over 2,000 miles of roads and 150 bridges have been affected. Nawaz Jamali, a social sciences lecturer at LUAWMS University in Balakistan, has been helping with the volunteer effort in the southwestern province's villages, including Gandaka. This whole town has been converted into a dam with multiple sources of water pouring in, but with no exit. So it's killing people feet by feet. It chokes us, he says. Jamali adds that the floods had trapped his uncle, whom he helped eventually evacuate. We are helping so many people with little manpower and we are in such a confused state. We don't know what to do. Experts say Pakistan has not done enough to prepare for floods, which are frequent in the country. Countries with similar, similar risk profiles, such as Nepal and Vietnam, have invested in building infrastructure to absorb climate shocks, says Amira Sawas, Director of Programs and Research at Climate Outreach and a climate and water expert on Pakistan. Pakistan has recently focused on mega projects such as building dams to manage water, but this has worsened the effects of flooding. The pockets of water caused by dams overflow during extreme rain. The International Monetary Fund, or IMF, approved a $1.1 billion bailout package Monday for Pakistan to help the nation avoid an imminent default. Michael Kugelman, deputy director of the South Asia program at the Wilson Center, points out that Pakistan is already dealing with skyrocketing food prices that will likely increase even more because supplies will go down with entire harvests wiped out. And recovery will be hampered by a monsoon period that is not yet over. It's going to be difficult to focus on recovery if you've got more rain, Kugelman adds. For her part, climate outreaches Sawa says that climate change is Pakistan's biggest security risk and deserves the investment that recognizes it as such. The idea of security is a very old school militarized notion of Pakistan versus India. But if we look at the situation now, millions are in distress. This is a massive human security issue. But the floods have also called attention to the global iniquity and who bears the brunt of the climate crisis. Pakistan has been responsible for only 0.4% of the world's historic CO2 emissions. The onus is on the international community, particularly the industrialized world in the West and countries like China, to do more to help Pakistan but also Pakistan arguably could have done a better job to keep its backyard in better order in terms of climate proofing and emissions reduction, says Kugelman. Myra Hayat, an assistant professor of environment and peace studies at the University of Notre Dame, told the BBC about how Pakistanis may rightly be focused on holding the state accountable but that citizens of the global North needed to reflect on how their countries have contributed to the climate crisis. Pakistanis know to hold the state accountable, but there are certain other questions that citizens of the global North need to be asking of their states, Hyatt said. So for example, 
What is the responsibility of the global north in the kind of devastation that we're seeing in Pakistan today? Part of that introspection for rich countries entails a serious conversation about who should pay for loss and damage in poorer countries, Hayat and others have said. Many climate activists and politicians are pushing for countries responsible for the most CO2 emissions to be required to foot a larger part of the bill. At the 2015 Paris Agreement on Climate Change, signatories recognized the issue, but have since stopped short of an enforcement mechanism to put the program into place. The US and EU have actively resisted such efforts. Sawas hopes that Pakistan's floods will call attention to the loss and damage issue ahead of the UN COP27 meeting in November. In the meantime, even with donations pouring in, it can still be a challenge to secure supplies, as Jamali's volunteer efforts show. We now have donations, but we don't have a market to buy things or don't have a way to bring things here. In the morning, we sent for a tractor to bring rations, but are still waiting because the road is blocked, he says. I just feel helpless. Um, so that was a bit of a long read. I had to cut out some things for the sake of time, but we'll put the link to the entire article on our show pages. But yes, like absolutely horrible and like devastating losses that are still ongoing in Pakistan right now. Yeah, this is so sad what's happening. I've watched a couple of news stories and videos just kind of seeing the devastation and you know, when you were reading the article, you were saying eight times the normal amount. Like, I, it's, it's unimaginable um, how this, how how long it's going to take to recover for something like this. Uh, the previous video I was watching about this story was talking about the healthcare facilities that are underwater, basically. And um, all the people who were receiving treatment and now needing treatment, and they really don't even have any facilities uh so we have to be a global community in times like this. I think a lot of time it's hard for us in the West to imagine the level of devastation that happens with this. We've only seen it in a few natural disasters that have happened in the, in the States, but, you know, they really need help. Like there's really not a lot of lateral sort of assistance that's available. So anything we can do to help um, the Pakistani community right now and the families of those who are affected by this is really important. Yeah, I don't know if you saw that um, there's been some news stories about how like you can see from space like how bad the flooding is because it's like it just looks like there's this random new lake where, Ooh. you know, there wasn't one before just because of the extent of this flooding. And we actually did a story um earlier in the summer or it may have been in the late spring about the really bad heat waves happening in Pakistan yeah. that were extremely bad like people were the temperature had gotten to where it wasn't um it was past the temperature that is safe for human beings to be in and that was mentioned in the article that we were discussing at that point was the issue with the glaciers melting and that this is also a place that has like a monsoon seat, like there's already a rainy season. So on top of that, you have glaciers melting with this extreme heat. COVID is still happening. 
there's things happening with, you know, food being in shorter supply because of the war in Ukraine. Um, I didn't read it in this article, but they did mention um, in part that I had to skip over about how Pakistan is also going through a time of like political upheaval. So it's really, it's like, if it's not one thing, it's another. And I do think it's important what they mentioned at the end about how it's really not fair that the richest countries are the places that are the most responsible for extremely drastic changes in the climate that are going on. But the people that are bearing the brunt of the effects are people that are barely, you know, their contribution to climate change is like a drop in the bucket compared to, you know, the stuff we put in the atmosphere, people in Europe, people in other quote unquote developed places. And, you know, it's like what we see here, whether it's Jackson, the black city, people don't have drinkable water. The infrastructure is all messed up. That was 17 years ago, Flint, Michigan. Michigan. Like you see that, you know, people at the top are making the decisions and creating the conditions. And then it's the people that are, you know, poor, typically non-white, not really contributing to the problem that then have to deal with the problem. And we see that more broadly around the world, you know, 0.4% of the CO2 emissions, but you're having to deal with like a hundred percent of the flooding and disaster that comes from, you know, these really damaging environmental policies. And you have the powers that be fighting against taking more accountability for it. It's just, it's shameful and something has got to change. This can't keep going on. Absolutely. Prayers up for everyone that's in Pakistan and all the families that are being affected by it. All right, y'all. So we have a final news story today, which is our good news story put together by Emily. Uh, This story comes from an article on the Good News Network. Um, Interesting story. It looks like it was uh, created on August 22nd. The title of this article is Breakthrough Might Finally Destroy the Harmful Forever Chemicals in Our Water. So really in uh, alignment with what we were just talking about. FOSS, a group of manufactured chemicals commonly used since the 1940s, are called forever chemicals for a reason. Bacteria can't eat them, fire can't incinerate them, and water can't dilute them. And if these toxic chemicals are buried, they leach into surrounding soil. Now, Northwestern University chemists have done the seemingly impossible, have done the seemingly impossible. Using low temperatures and inexpensive common substances, the research team developed a process that causes two major classes of PFAS compounds to fall apart, leaving behind only benign end products. The simple technique potentially called could be powerful solution for finally disposing of these harmful chemicals, which are linked to dangerous health effects that may be common in your water supply. PFAS has become a major societal problem, and Northwestern's William Deitchell, who led the study, says, we wanted to use chemistry to address this problem and create a solution that the world could use. It's exciting because of how simple yet unrecognized our solution is. 
PFAS per the polyfluorolic, oh gosh, Jasmine, <laughs> the polyfluorolical, there we go, sorry, PFAS per the polyfluorolical substances have been in use for 70 years as nonstick and waterproofing agents. They are commonly found in nonstick cookware, waterproof cosmetics, firefighting foams, water repellent fabrics, and products that res resist grease and oil. Over the years, however, PFAS has seeped into the drinking water supplies. Although the health effects are not yet fully understood, PFAS exposure is associated with many adverse health effects, and the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency recently declared several PFAS as unsafe, even if trace, even at trace levels. Although community efforts to filter PFAS from water have been successful, there are a few solutions on how to dispose the PFAS once it is removed. The few options that have emerged generally involved is destruction at high temperatures and pressures or other methods that require large energy inputs. The secret to PFAS and destructionality lies in the chemical bonds. PFAS contains many carbon fluoride bonds, which are the strongest bonds in organic chemistry. As in most as the most electronegative element in the periodic table, fluorine wants electrons and badly. Carbon, on the other hand, is more willing to give up its electrons. Just give me a second, Jasmine, sorry. Okay, so you might have to just cut like that last little piece and I'll pick it up in the middle here because most of it is the same. Okay, although community efforts to filter PFAS from water have been successful, there are a few solutions to, for how to dispose of PFAS once it's removed. The few options that have emerged generally involved is destruction in high temperatures and pressures of other methods that require large energy inputs. In previous attempts to destroy PFAS, other researchers have used high temperatures up to 400 degrees Celsius. Daicho is excited that the new technique relies on milder conditions and the simple, inexpensive ingredient, making the solution potentially more practical for widespread use. After discovering the PFAS degradation conditions, Daicho and Trang also discovered that the fluorinated pollutants fall apart in more complex process than generally assumed not one carbon at a time, but actually two or three carbons at a time. But understanding these pathways, researchers can confirm that only benign products remain. This provided to be a very complex set of calculations that challenged the most modern quantum me mechanical methods and fastest computers available to us, said collaborator Ken Hook, a research professor in organic chemistry at UCLA. The US has identified more than 12,000 different PFAS compounds, Although this might seem daunting, Daicho remains hopeful, and his team is supported by the National Science Foundation. Our work addressed one of the largest classes of PFAS, including many we are most concerned about, says Daicho. There are other classes that don't have the same Achilles heel, but each one will have its own weakness. If we can identify it, then we know how to activate it to destroy it. So that's pretty interesting. Um, I think that a lot of times we don't know exactly where some pollutants lie that are more common than others. Um, and it seems as though this study here is kind of 
hitting the nail on the head when it comes to something that is affecting all of us on a regular basis, something that we use generally probably too much. Um, so that's good news to hear. Yeah, like I know Emily will often say that um, diseases and stuff is like her house of horrors or it's a thing that, you know, keeps her up at night. I would say these types of things is more so my something that I think about often and can get me kind of depressed, like just how, you know, these chemicals that, you know, when they were created, I don't think there was an awareness of what they would potentially do or that there yeah. would be no place for them to go. It was just like in the moment, it's like, oh, this is great pans that don't stick or whatever and then it's not until a generation has passed or sometimes longer that it's like oh shit this stuff is leaching into the ground it's in the rainwater. like there was a creepy report recently that um no rainwater anywhere in the world is safe to drink and I didn't go into a lot of detail. Like I didn't read very deeply into the article. So I'm sure the headline was a little bit, you know, to grab your attention. But the main idea was just that, you know, these chemicals and like microplastics and all of this, like we use them so much that, you know, it has now become just like a part of the ecosystem. So I, I'm hopeful that this is, um, this, idea of how to get rid of them actually works but i hope that you know the just like with the climate change stuff like yes send aid and you should be sending money and governments need to be building infrastructure to try to fix what's currently happening but you also have to on the other end like stop doing the things that created the problem in the first place you know what I'm saying? Like, if you're going to yep. have something to get rid of the forever chemicals, that's great. But that shouldn't give people a feeling like it's okay to keep producing stuff that might be harmful. Like, you know, we want to get rid of it for good. Don't keep put, putting it out there. Right. Uh, creating other things that are similar. And then think, oh, we'll just come up with technology later that'll clean it up. Like, you kind of have to work at it at both ends. Exactly. So thanks for the research, M. Definitely important for us to know these things and uh, uh, different um, improvements that are happening in science. It's always good to hear that the scientists are still doing what they do. <laughs> All right, y'all. So this brings us to the end of our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on Spotify. Please keep listening for more independent Brooklyn media. We are going to pay, play out our episode today with our final track. This is Before I Let Go from the Homecoming live album. Happy birthday, Beyonce. And y'all have a wonderful week and a happy holiday weekend. Yeah, happy September, everybody. Have Happy almost fall. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.
you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.